Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Lewis. Hello, Daniel. How are you? Oh, oh look, I'm great because we've got a whole bunch of new Patreon subscribers. Julia Stafford, Kieran Costellino, fellow Bertha fellow, Antonio Yuhas from the US, who we'll be hearing from a little later on, and also Eric with a K. Damn. All right. We're hitting that Swedish market. <laughs> That's right, yeah. They all signed up for as little as $3 a month to help us make the show. Our generous Patreon subscribers cover about 50% of the costs of making this show and the rest of it, well, uh, I don't want to brag, but I have been employed from uh, time to time. So, you know, I chip in a little bit. You know what they used to say when, when we worked at the ABC together? They used to say it was a privilege to work at the ABC because they paid us so badly. <laughs> yeah, and they had to convince you somehow. It is a privilege and to work a privilege at the national broadcaster. Work at the and having a podcast is an absolute honour. Let's put it that way. Uh, this episode of Irrational Fear is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation, fighting for a more just world. I'm recording my end of this show on Gadigal land in the Eora Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. Let's start the show. Irrational Fear contains naughty words like Brexit, Canberra, Fair Dickum, and Section 44. Irrational Fear recommends listening by immature audiences. Tonight on Irrational Fear, the federal government is set to cut loans to university students who fail their subjects, leaving many political science students wondering how they can be expected to get jobs in politics if they don't get experience first in failing while being taxpayer funded. And the Victorian Racing Club wants a crowd of up to 50,000 people for Melbourne Cup Day with plans to rebrand the iconic event as the race that restarts the pandemic. And Joe Biden has picked his running mate, Kamala Harris, who is now just a heartbeat, an election, a Russian disinformation campaign, a plague, a depression and a civil war away from the presidency. This is Irrational Fear. Irrational Fear! Yeah. 
Yes, this is Irrational Fear. I'm former Channel 10 weatherman Dan Illich, and joining us on the panel this week to discuss all the news we should be scared of is former ABC Melbourne breakfast host and champion of the 2010 director video classic, Batman Under the Red Hood. It's Sammy Shah. Hey, Sammy, you wrote 10 years ago on Twitter today that Batman Thank Under the Red Hood. Thank you so much for having me. I will get back to the Joker. <laughs> you wrote on Twitter 10 years ago today that it was bloody awesome. Do you still stand by that? You know what? Of all the different DC animated films, I will still maintain Batman Under the Red Hood is in the top three. It definitely is. It still lives up to the high standard that they set. Um, and yeah, absolutely. The Joker has it coming and uh, my boy is going to give it to him. And she's a lawyer by day, comedian by night, returning panellist and half woman, half dolphin. It's Beck Melrose. Beck, what's the ocean like right now? Uh, it's just good to be anywhere other than my house. <laughs> <laughs> and from next week, he's taking two weeks off the podcast to drive around the country, destroying 5G phone towers as he goes. It's Lewis Hobber. <laughs> Hello, Dan. Yeah, that's right. I'm hoping to be uh, Australia's greatest vector. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, we'll talk about this later on, but I went on a road trip in a couple of weeks ago and I felt very nervous that I could be a vector around New South Wales. Well, the worst thing about it is that, um, I'm, the place I'm actually going is... Uh, I'm, go- I'm going to Byron Bay for two weeks, which is essentially the home of people who don't wash their hands. Like, I will get it. And none of those people are going to get vaccinated. They're, they're, they're immune vulnerable. No, they'll see me in a mask, they'll they'll beat me up, they'll burn down the nearest 5G tower. It's going to be a really relaxing holiday. <laughs> You're not going to get coronavirus, Lewis, because you'll be too busy getting smallpox. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I'm going to go old school, just crack out the, the bubonic plague. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, collect them all. I like that, Beck. Big <laughs> podcast this week. We've got two special guests coming up a little later on. We're going to be talk- talking with Paddy Manning from the Saturday paper about the major threat facing the Abdani Carmichael mine and also chatting with US-based journalist Antonio Yuhas, who tells us what Kamala Harris means for climate action in the United States. But first, here is this week's sponsor. Hi, I'm Peter Dutton. Many of you have reached out to say that Australian Border Force is responsible for the disembarkment of contagious COVID-19 passengers from the Ruby Princess. Well, two things. One, thanks for reaching out. We now know where you live and we will be in touch sooner or later or when you least expect it. And two, it's not true. Australian Border Force has a proud half-decade history of stopping boat people from destroying Australia. And technically, the Ruby Princess was a ship. Those people were ship people, and that's not our bag. Locking up boat people, Australian Border Force. Locking up ship people, it's legally ambiguous, but I'd suggest probably the fault of a pro-union, pro-labour port authority. Australian Border Force. We stop the boats, not ships. Spoken unauthorised by Peter Dutton. I know we live in Canberra. So it's good to have Peter Dutton's money on the show. First fear tonight, Russian state media is claiming that Russia has the COVID-19 vaccine. It would make sense that Russia would come out first because, after all, the Tokyo Olympics have been cancelled and there are a lot of Russian pharmaceutical experts who've got a lot of time on their hands. Uh, <laughs> Russian journalists are declaring this a Sputnik moment. What does this Sputnik moment mean, Sami Shah? It's it's really remarkable that they've called it a Sputnik moment because they've called the vaccine Sputnik Five, right? And the idea being, according to Putin, it's the they are paying homage to the fact that they were the first into space with Sputnik Five. Yeah. Except one tiny detail that they have not really mentioned, and the history books kind of tend to forget, is Sputnik Five didn't actually have any humans on it. 
It wasn't Yuri Gagarin wasn't in space until Vostok one, which was eight months later. Sputnik five, however, carried two dogs, forty mice, two rats, and a bunch of plants. And I'm assuming those are the things that died in the creation of this so-called vaccine. What's even amazing is normally Russian medicine waits until someone comes out with a vaccine before coming up with their bootleg version. But in this case, we got the bootleg first, and so it's really exciting change in the pharmaceutical game. It's like Russian roulette, isn't it? <laughs> I would say, like, I would say they called it Sputnik because they once you inject it, all you hear is beeping and seeing stars. That's all you've got. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I reckon it's nice for, uh, to see toxic masculinity channeled for the greater good for a change, though. Great. <laughs> <Hey. laughs> got some positive coming out of it. They have been um, so good at poisoning lately, and it's just good to see them still at the top of their game. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting that they, they field tested this first on Russian dissidents in UK and uh, <laughs> the ones that survived that experience are the ones who now, you know, don't get coronavirus. Oh. Um, but I'm going to pay, pay homage to um, Dan's fun earlier and just point out that uh, the leader, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin, even though he even vaccinated his daughter, Putin, her life at stake. Uh, Thank you very much. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. Very I live good. in Melbourne. There's very not good. much else to do. Well Thank you. <laughs> It's worth a shot. Sammy, you are welcome on this podcast again. <laughs> I mean, if we're going that low, we could say they're rushing it through. <laughs> well, oh. They are rushing it through. This is absolutely right. You did mention they, he did um, try it out on his daughter first. It's kind of unusual because apparently not many, not many people know about Vladimir Putin's daughters. He doesn't even doesn't even acknowledge them and no one in the state apparatus <laughs> acknowledges them. Uh, this is like one of the very first times that he's ever acknowledged the existence of his daughters. It's incredible. Given that the last time any Russian leader acknowledged their child was when Stalin basically had let his son be killed in a, in a German concentration camp, I think it's all right if we just ignore their parental techniques, basically. <laughs> all we need to do is start convincing Trump to um, test things on his children and we'll be A-OK. -okay. <laughs> You're listening to a rational fear. My daughter, yeah. Ivanka, she's six feet tall. She's got the best body. If Ivanka weren't my daughter, perhaps I'd be dating her. <laughs> Next fear, during this pandemic, the media have been rather quick to blame and shame all sorts of people for COVID-19. Rather than Peter Dutton and Australian Border Force for the arrival of the disease on our shores, what's the point of building like a powerful, centralised mega ministry if you can't even stop one tiny little germ? They had a head start for one... Uh, we're girt by sea, and two, we've spent the last 20 years building offshore processing centres for this exact thing, but, of course, no... Not all blame is equal. In On July 30, the Courier-Mail doxed two, to two teenagers from Melbourne who travelled through the southeast Queensland. Unknowingly, they had COVID-19. Meanwhile, uh, a Rockhampton doctor, a wealthy Aspen skier, a mercenary from Afghanistan completely escaped the same doxing treatment from the News Corp press. Beck Melrose, who is to blame here? Oh, I think we all are a little bit, aren't we? I mean, the, it feels good to finally be in control of something and there's just a lot of scolding going on. Everyone's loving a good scold at the moment, but there's all this research out at the moment that's talking about how this kind of public shaming backfires when it comes to compliance with public health messaging. I, I think it's true and, and privilege is play, playing a part in it too. I keep going out with my mates and they're like, oh, there are so many people out and about. It's like, we're out and about too. What <laughs> makes a different different rule for us, you know? But yeah, there's there's research out that's saying that uh, you know non-white and other disadvantaged groups are experiencing the stigma more severely than privileged 
groups and that's for sure happening. Why didn't we out the Aspen skiers? How come they got away with it and others haven't? It is so bizarre. Like normally people who go skiing in Aspen, you find out all about it on Instagram. But no, you don't, we didn't hear one skerrick about it from this, this group that came back with the disease. Exactly, exactly. And, I mean, it's everyone's kind of participating in it. We have a right to be angry, I guess, you know. Like it's, it's you know, it's a very anxious time. Um, and we've got good basis. Public executions used to be our preferred form of entertainment. So this public shaming has just kind of been taken online and we're just, we're going mad with it. There's nothing else to do but like masturbate, watch TV and shame people on social media. So we're just ripping right in. It's 2020. That's, that is a great, that is a great lineup for 2020. Big Melrose. Fantastic. It just seems like um, since no one's able to actually like touch any hands, we're just pointing our fingers instead. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. It's social social distance shaming. <laughs> the thing that's getting me as well is when they're um, releasing these, like, footprints of all the venues that people have been to as well, I would be so embarrassed. Like, you'd look at mine and she'd be like, why is she going to open mics in a pandemic? Like, stay home. <laughs> never, a library's never listed. Like, it's all the loose units who are getting it. Like, there's, yeah. there's never Leichhardt Community Centre that's been closed for a deep clean. Dan Illich went to KFC and Krispy Kremes on the same day? <laughs> in one day? <laughs> Lewis, do you think naming and shaming works or does it? Or do you think it makes at least some people feel good? I mean, it definitely uh, makes people at the Courier Mail feel a little better, I would say. But yeah, it is uh, the the absolute huge gap between the people that they're naming and shaming is so obvious, and it's it's so frustrating because the those two people who did get doxxed, their behaviour wasn't likable. It was difficult to defend, but it is one of those things where you're like, it's a difference between defending their behaviour and defending the outing of them, which was so unconscionable and so obviously racist you just as you say the aspen skiers so many different kinds of people who have broken quarantine and not a single one of them has made the front page sammy you're at the end of our second week of hard lockdown in melbourne if you could burn off some energy blow off some steam right now and put someone on the front page of the courier mail who would it be well, see, because it is the Courier Mail, you can, that's a trick question, right? I can't put a white person on the front page of the Courier Mail because no one will believe it. They'll just think that the uh, the uh, gamma settings on the Photoshop system were wrong <laughs> and these are actually meant to be two black people because the Courier Mail has never put a face on the front in a negative way if it was a white person. It's always going to be a black or a brown person. So it's been really remarkable to kind of see this, this embrace of uh, racism here in Australia because you've never seen something like it before. I really had no idea that Australia had any racism at all as a country. Australians were racist people. So it's really a shock to me, to my system. I, I, I feel betrayed. I feel surprised, let down. I don't know what to believe in anymore. Next thing you know, Russia is going to go on vaccines or something. I don't know. I mean, it's just, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just hurt. I'm just hurt. That's all I can say. Sammy, are you nervous when lockdown is over and you have to go and meet your fellow racist Australians outside. <laughs> outside. I reckon the only way we would see uh, like two brown people on the p- front cover of the Courier Mail with any kind of like positive headline would be if it was two white guys in blackface. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey is back. And they'd be like, look at these legends. <laughs> Bloody larrikins. Uh, the Aussie spirit's still alive. A rational fear. Post-mortem results are not expected. Your fear is rational.
Next fear. This week, the US uh, presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden picked the very obvious choice of Kamala Harris as his running mate for the 2020 election. Fearmongers, we are 82 days away from either more of the same or perhaps uh, someone who could make America normal again. What are your thoughts on Kamala Harris? Dan, firstly, I want to commend you on your pronunciation of the name Kamala because um, <laughs> most of America has been torn apart by how to pronounce her name. Uh, they've been Kamalas, they've been Kamalas, they've been all kinds of things. So in 2016, um, she actually released a video showing people how to pronounce her name using children. Yeah. It's not Kamala. It's not Kamala. It's not Kamala. It's Kamala. Kamala Harris. I'm glad you watched so I just want to, you know, hats off to you, Dan. Sammy, I can I can pronounce it well because I've spent a lot of time in America working uh, as a as a producer and, and a journalist. And uh, one of my American contacts actually gave me Kamala's number, and we can mm. give her a call to congratulate her. Let me uh, just line that up right now. Let's give Kamala a call. They said, "This is." I said, "Is this Kamala's number?" They said, "Yes, this is Kamala's number." Remarkable. Let's have a look. Hello. Uh, uh, hello. Is this um, Kamala Harris? She's in the kitchen right now. Do you need to speak to her? Uh, no, hang on, hang on. No, uh, we do. Yeah, we we do want to. We do want to talk to Kamala. Oh, I don't know whether she is free to talk right now. Is this Kamala or is this Kamal? Depends. Oh, hang on a second. Well, I've got the wrong there number. There those dulcet tones. Look, I'm so sorry. I can't believe. I can't believe my friend gave me the wrong number to Kamala Harris. Uh, Kamal. Yes. I understand you are a mega U.S. politics fan. Not really. I I became an Obama tragic after meeting him uh, personally um, in 2011. But before that, I don't know. Well, in fact, I had read his book, The Audacity of Hope, in 2007. And that uh, changed, you know, I had never been... Uh, interested in politics at all till I came across the book on my way to Malaysia in in uh, the latter part of uh, 2007. Since we thought we were talking to Kamala Harris, can we talk to you as if you might be Kamala? How are you feeling about getting the nomination? Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, I never, ever, ever dreamed that I would be selected by Joe, even though... Actually, I dated his son for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Kamala, uh, tell us, what are your plans for this election? If dreams could come true, I would like to erase racism and prejudice and uh, let humanity, kindness, you know, that I think there was there's some someone in your country in Australia has asked the question. Why are so many people so unkind? And I ask myself that very same question. I mean, how do we, how do we substitute unkindness with kindness? Maybe it comes with knowledge. <laughs> well, Kamala, I think that's very sage words. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's the least I could do, and I, I will give your best wishes to to Joe, Joe Biden, that is. All right, excellent. And when you become vice president, can we come and visit you at the White House? I hope by the time you decide to come, I might be president. <laughs> <laughs> well, anything is possible. Can we talk to Kamal just for one second? 
Of course. Well, who do you want to talk to now? Uh, Kamal, I want to talk to you. Tell how do yeah, you, sure. you you are you are a US politics nut. What is your what's the one thing you find interesting about Kamala Harris? Uh, you know, the, maybe I suppose the fact that uh, she's part Indian. Uh, there is a, a, a you know uh, umbilical connection to that. I don't know why I react that way, but uh, maybe the fact that I have five of the letters of my name connected to hers, <laughs> may, who knows? But basically, the way Kamala uh, disposed of William Barr during the cross examination yeah. and the way she, yeah, I mean the, the, uh, that was just brilliant. You know, to the Attorney General of the United States cannot couldn't respond coherently to to Kamala. I mean, to me, that should be enshrined and should be repeated. Maybe that is going to be your next video. You are going to be reenacting Kamala Harris ripping William Barr a new one. So, will you play? Uh, will you play Barr then? <laughs> uh, yes, I'll play Barr. <laughs> You know, you know. Interestingly enough, did you know Barr's father had connections with Jeffrey Epstein? <laughs> uh, I had no idea, and I guess Epstein. <laughs> I guess Epstein's dead, and I guess uh, I guess that's seriously, not defamatory. I guess that's not defamatory. Seriously, uh, William Barr's father employed Jeffrey Epstein because if Jeffrey Epstein was a phenomenal teacher, I think he taught maths and science. And he was brilliant. He was like the, you know, uh, uh, you know, Dead Poet Society, Robin Williams, that he had a cha- he had a way to hypnotize kids. But uh, that was only that was that was fine, except that his other uh, traits uh, spoiled everything. Yeah. All right. And uh, after uh, Williams Bar's father had employed uh, Jeffrey Epstein within six months, they were both expelled from the school. Uh, if you want to find out more about Kamal's own interests in US politics. All you got to do is follow him on Twitter. Uh, he's very engaged. Kamal, thank you so much for joining us on Irrational Fear. The pleasure was entirely mine and please be kind. <laughs> thank you, Kamal. Bye. <laughs> oh, I can't believe I've got that number mixed up. Oh, That's can you believe that? I can't Just believe uh... I... Uh... I saw him at the 2005 Big Day Out. Did you really? Realising, yeah, <laughs> the vice president of the United States. <laughs> he just ruined uh, uh, Dead Poet Society forever for me. Oh, yeah. I call it, oh, captain, my captain. Oh, no, come on my island. <laughs> Man, that was so wild. I really didn't see the um, the Epstein stuff coming at the end. I did yeah. not. I loved, I, lo- I mean, I love Kamal. Yeah, I wasn't, I just didn't see the like pedophile island chat coming from Kamal. Yeah. I mean, he is best friends with Rupert Murdoch. So, you know, him <laughs> becoming vice president wouldn't be the only way Rupert Murdoch gives uh, a Democratic nominee any good coverage. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to chat through what this VP pick means for the future of climate action in the USA, I spoke with fellow Bertha Fellow and energy analyst and investigative journalist Antonia Yuhas earlier yesterday. Antonia, welcome to Irrational Fear. Thank you for having me. Great to be with you. What is uh, Kamala Harris's track record like on climate action? Well, she's only been in the United States Senate for a few years, so we need to look back at her record um, as California Attorney General 
where it's not as easy to parse out someone's climate record when they're attorney general. So what she did do was um, introduce an environmental justice office um, in through her work at environmental justice has been a key thread throughout her career and the fossil fuel industry has not. So in her entire political career, she's only taken $170,000 in total from an entirely broad category that's called energy and natural resources, which is basically nothing. So that's a sign that she is not tied to this industry. And certainly her policy proposals, the legislation that she's put forward and the policies that she ran on when she was running for president are very aggressive climate and anti-fossil fuel policies. I like that $170,000 is nothing in America. That's, that's <laughs> great. That would, be, that would be a scandal in Australia. That's funny. She yeah, said, no, that's nothing. How are you feeling about this VP pick as someone who covers the energy sector and the climate action sector? I think it's a great pick. I think that she um, pushes Biden to be more aggressive on climate and fossil fuels. Her positions are definitely more aggressive than his. She supports a Green New Deal. She's put forward serious environmental justice and climate justice legislation in the Senate. And she's made pledges to ban fracking, to end subsidies to the fossil fuel industry, to end federal government support for the fossil fuel industry, to halt new leasing on federal lands or waters for oil and gas operations, to oppose new oil and gas infrastructure. I mean, it's it's across the board. And then her legislation, I think, with a focus on environmental justice, is particularly key because it gets to the legislation addresses how do you address the systemic harm of environmental injustice that has been leveled against communities of color in the United States? And how do you redress that through policy? And it's not just about stopping the use of fossil fuels. It's while those operations still exist, and of course they will continue to for some time, Mm. how do you address the inequities uh, of those policies and try and address the harms to public health, to the environment, public safety, et cetera. I mean, for weeks, the, one of the main talking points for commentators and, and, and bloggers and anyone who wants to have an opinion is that Kamala Harris is not progressive enough and the progressives in the Democratic Party just won't be placated with Kamala. But it seems today, the day that it's been announced, that progressives are just ready to get on with the show. <laughs> is Kamala enough? I, you know, I think that she is... Um, what was needed for this moment in time and for this ticket. Biden is a deeply problematic candidate, uh, has deeply problematic positions, as anyone who spent as much time as I have, um, you know, opposing uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know, Biden was a deeply upsetting uh, uh, development to be the candidate. Mm. And Harris is still a moderate. She's mostly a moderate on most issues, and that is true. But the places where she is not moderate really count on the issues that I care about in particular, and that is, um, you know, on the climate and on fossil fuels. And I'm, you know, I, I think that this is a historic and important and exciting candidacy, and it is something that people are going to get excited about, and I think progressives are going to get excited about it too. Well, Antonia, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge on um, on Irrational Fear. Irrational Fear! This is 
From the cut and thrust of climate action in America to the pull and fart of climate denialism in Australia, the economic case for coal could sink one of the most contentious coal projects in the world, the Adani Carmichael Mine, uh, also known as the Adani Pit of Global Heat Death. Paddy Manning from the Saturday Paper has written a brilliant piece on why it might fall over. Uh, Paddy, thank you so much for joining us on Irrational Fear. Thanks, Dan. There's no uh, pits of heat death, though, uh, in the story. I don't know much about those. <laughs> well, I've got some questions for you about your story. First question, Paddy, who is your favourite contestant on this season of The Bachelor so far? <laughs> I haven't watched a minute of it. Perfect. Now, for those who aren't aware of the Adani Carmichael mine, what threat does it pose to the earth as a whole? The Adani mine is basically a threat because it, the infrastructure, in particular the rail, uh, needed to get that coal to the coast because it's about 400 k's inland. Uh, once that's built, it'll make a whole basin a whole new thermal coal basin in Queensland kind of economics. So it's not so much this one mine, although the scale of this mine as it was originally proposed at 60 million tonnes per annum uh, is enormous. It's the other mines behind it, which are also proposed by Clive Palmer, by Gina Reinhart, you know, the lot. So, Is it possible, however, though, Paddy, that um, the sheer destruction this would wreak in Queensland is entirely what Queenslanders deserve is because largely they're full of shit and horrifically terrible people. Possible. Um, Sammy's just trying to get himself on the front page of the Courier Mail this week. <laughs> uh, look, Queensland's, you know, it's, it's an interesting proposition because Queensland's actually, it's the future of its coal fields is, is much more secure than um, the future of the coal fields in the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, or certainly the brown coal that's mined for energy in Victoria. So basically because Queensland has got the highest proportion of coking coal, mm. um, you know, which is used for steel making uh, and is, you know, uh, much more valuable. Uh, it's got a higher calorific value. Mm. And, uh, and it's, so, the, so the mine life for the Queensland coking coal mines is, you know, that they can reasonably expect to be mining that for, you know, decades. Thermal coal, which accounts for 90% of the tonnes in the world uh, that's shipped by sea, thermal coal is much more threatened immediately because, you know, it's facing competition from uh, renewables and it's under pressure from investors for the obvious reasons, you know, due to climate change. Nothing to do with whether Queensland is a nice pebble or not. They just, <laughs> they just happen to be sitting on this incredibly excellent uh, coking coal resource Paddy, I was reading your piece and uh, that was really interesting. I had a couple of questions about it. But when you say that the, um, the economic side is divorced now, why would Adani push forward with it? Well, he's partly because he's already bought, um, a, you know, the Abbott Point um, coal terminal for $2 billion in 2010. So he's got this integrated strategy, which is described as pit, as in the mine pit, uh, all the way through the rail, through the shipping, to the power station back in India and then to the plug-in homes in uh, India or Bangladesh. And so it's called Pit to Plug. And, uh, and he bought the port a decade ago and he bought the tenement, as in the, the ground, you know, of uh, Link Energy a decade ago. 
Now, the, the thing what's happened is that the world has completely changed in those 10 years. He's looking at a sunk, you know, he's made money off the coal terminal in the meantime, but um, he's kind of at this juncture where, and this is what I sort of focused on in the story, has he spent so much, he's right at that tipping point, has he spent so much on this mine that he can't afford to pull out? Or would it be better if he could just find a, another mine that didn't require him to build 400 kilometres of rail, which BHP, as it happens, wants to sell the biggest coal mine in the country down in the Hunter Valley, which is Mount Arthur. And that's what I think is an interesting development in mm. the last month. And, mm. and why is BHP selling that mine? Well, BHP has already spun off most of its thermal coal assets five years ago into a company called South 32. And BHP, like most investors, is coming under pressure to get its emissions down. So a lot of big businesses have, um, you know, talk about net zero emissions by 2050. And BHP is under pressure from its own shareholders, including one of its largest, which is the Norwegian you know, Sovereign, Sovereign Wealth Fund, Fund yeah. to get rid of thermal coal. The other thing is thermal coal is tanked as a commodity prices halved in the last in just in the course of the last couple of years so um you know now that's cyclical and a lot of you know you would have seen glencore in the last you know recent weeks has cut its production and that's going to cause job losses in new south wales as well you know the coal sector like the oil and gas um industry is is has been hit by the pandemic so it's a good time to sell one of the most interesting things in this piece that you wrote was just really floored me back in may uh, Mr. Adani wrote on LinkedIn that COVID-19 was an opportunity to pause, rethink and design a new faster transition to low carbon future. And he ends, ends his piece by saying, although the impact of climate change is slower to emerge than the pandemic, it's a threat to humanity. It's threat to humanity is more significant. Therefore, the case to, of, of transition to a cleaner energy future must be taken up not only by government, but also by industry. India is quietly and firmly leading the way. COVID-19 may be, may be the turning point where society lives leverages the economic rebuilding effort to fast-track the transition to a cleaner future. That doesn't sound like a coal-thirsty member of the coalition. Like if if Keith Pitt, Matt Canavan were at a pub and Mr Adani walked in and said that to them, they would tell Mr Adani to fuck off out <laughs> and never come back into that pub again. What yeah. like it, it for me it's like his his interests and his values are clearly at odds with with this coal mine, how long do you think it will be before he completely capitulates and gets gets rid when, of it? Sorry, just to interrupt, Dan, when did he write that? In May. Because in, okay, because in 1998, I remember there was a story out of India that he had been kidnapped at gunpoint and held at gunpoint for a while until he was released on ransom. So I thought maybe this was something that he written at gunpoint, you know, as a, as a signal to yeah. people that I'm still alive, but things are not yeah. good right now. Yeah, it was, yeah he, he was tied up in the basement of yeah. Greta Thunberg's house and Greta Thunberg had a Someone pistol. Someone should check him for him again. <laughs> the truth is he's aiming to make Adani the biggest renewable energy player in the world by 2030. You know, he wow. is uh, has has a huge investment in renewables, and uh, and his wealth is very much. You know, he's got half a dozen listed companies in India. He's the second, or it depends which you know wealth chart you look at, the rich list. But he's the certainly one of the most. You know, if not the second, I had thought he was the second. You know, the fact checker said it was the fifth. Uh, it seems to change year by year, of course, but. 
I'm actually the second, um, Patty. I'm actually the second richest person. In, 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 yeah. <laughs> all on yes. Patreon. All based on <laughs> Patreon. Patreon. Yeah, thanks to Patreon. Yeah. That's how so I can afford to make a podcast. Like US $16 billion. And a lot of that is to do with his investment in clean energy and, and transmission in, in India. It's yeah, um, interesting in your piece, like just the stat in your piece was fascinating. Uh, he's worth $16 billion. Five years ago, he started the renewable business. That business is now worth $8 billion. Yet over yep. the last 10 years, he's sunk a billion dollars into, into, into the Carmichael mine. Yeah. So, you know, what's, there used to be, you know, analysts used to say in the um, coal space that the Galilee Basin's not economic when the car, coal price is below US 100 bucks a tonne. Yeah. So because you've got to fund the rail and the whole thing. It's a Greenfields project. So uh, the coal price now is about 50 bucks a tonne. But because Adani's made so much money, including on green energy, he can afford to bankroll this project. Also because he's not paying tax, you know, he's routing a lot of his, you know, Australian earnings through the, you know, Cayman Islands and other tax havens. So, um, but Adani's not a greenie. Uh, you know, he's got a terrible environmental track record in India. Right. He's a billionaire and he's like this with Narendra Modi and, uh, and Narendra Modi's prime ministership has been a boon for him. So Narendra Modi came in on a, partly on a platform of getting rid of crony capitalism, the way it was described to me is he's done that. He's just reduced the number of cronies. <laughs> of course, the remaining cronies are more powerful than ever. And Gautam Adani is one of those. Paddy. Maybe he's doing it out of spite because he saw that picture of Prime Minister Scott Morrison trying to make a curry at home and it was so <laughs> offensive to anyone of an Indian background. He's like, fuck this, I'm going to fucking destroy it Australia now country down. for that bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> and Queensland yeah, has to go him. anyway, so it's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fair, no, fair yeah, call. Yeah, the Stop Adani campaign used to describe him as the perfect villain and I think that there is probably an element of pride in the fact that He's become a villain uh, and he's, that's probably, um, you know, he's probably got a degree of obstinacy about, about this project now. What, what was in my story was that the, the fact that Bloomberg had reported only a couple of weeks previously that, surprise, surprise, Adani had bid for this Mount Arthur mine. Mm. Now, you put two and two together because Adani's Australian chief executive recently quit unexpectedly. Uh, Lucas Dow, and he's been the one that's been the culture warrior, taking it on the chin, fighting the greenies. Then he quits, he disappears. And who do they replace him with? The guy who used to run Mount Arthur at BHP. Mm. So so there's kind of people in the market going, hang on, what is going on here? Mm. And, and I quote Tim Buckley, the analyst, who is an opponent of the Adani mine, admittedly, but he is an experienced financial analyst in Australia in the merchant banking community. And he knows what he's talking about. And he's saying there is a possible win-win here because BHP wants to get out of thermal coal. Um, the workers at Mount Arthur want to continue. It's better quality coal than what's in the Galilee Basin. It's cheaper to mine and it would, it would suit Adani. So what the question raised is, what is Adani's real commitment to the Galilee Basin and to Queensland? And I think you'll probably find... You know, look, I'd be, I'm hesitant to make a prediction, yeah. but there is this enticing win-win scenario that's kind of emerging. But the, the timing, that, that the timing has to be pretty soon, though, right? They're just starting to build that railway. As soon as they make that railway, yeah. that unlocks the basin. So they might, yeah. he might as well move 
I mean, in, in, an, in a climate perspective, he needs to move quick so the Galilee Basin doesn't get unleashed. <laughs> Maybe if they hire the same people um, to build that railway that built the Sydney Light Rail, we might have an extra <laughs> 10 years or so. That'll buy us some time, won't it? Far out. Well, I didn't a- realise how much I had in common with Adani. <laughs> I was like, no, seriously, a lot of sunk costs going ahead with something that's not economically viable that nobody wants. That sounds like my festival show. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it for Irrational Fear tonight. Stick around after the credits for a bonus interview with an Australian Q Anon supporter. I'm as surprised as you are. Yep, they'll talk to anyone. A big thank you to our fear mongers tonight. Sammy, Beck, Lewis, Patty, and yes, Kamal, who really fucked up the joke, but who cares? <laughs> uh, uh, what have we got to plug? Patty, you've got your book, How Climate Change is Killing Us. Body Count. Body Count. Out now. <laughs> there it is. Great. Um, Sammy, have you got anything to plug? Please free Melbourne from the grip of stage four. Stay at home, keep your mask on. I have nothing to plug because I have nowhere to go. So, yeah. Beck Melrose, are you selling anything? Absolutely not at the moment. I'm just waiting this one out. Be kind to each other. I'll take oh. out away from Kamal. Oh, very good. And, and Lewis, you got anything to plug? Um, just my uh, road trip to Byron Bay. Uh, if you know anyone there who um, doesn't wash their hands, tell them to keep it clean for the next fortnight. Big thank you to everyone who helped on out on this week's show, including Yanni Agisolo, Tony Yuhas, Jacob Round, who is on the Teppanyaki timeline. Um, next week, Lewis is away uh, and for the next couple of weeks, but the podcast will go on. We will have next week Jamila Rizvi, Rosie Waterland, and fellow Bertha fellow Lindo on the podcast. Until then, there's always something to be scared of. Goodbye. Right now on Irrational Fear, we are joined by a believer in the QAnon conspiracy theories who wishes to stay anonymous. Uh, welcome. Thank you. So why are you anonymous? Otherwise people will be able to find out who I am. Uh, and why is that a bad thing? You've got to be careful, Dan. It's full of crazy people. Right. So what is QAnon? We're here to bring about the awakening to reveal the truth hidden from the majority because most people are people. They're sheeple. And you and your QAnon supporters aren't sheeple. No. Hence our motto. Where we go one, we go all. Uh, if sheep could talk, I think that's exactly what they would say. Where we go one, we go all. What makes you such an authority in sheep? I grew up on a farm. <laughs> mainstream media. If you don't trust mainstream media, who do you trust? We trust Q. And who is Q? He's an insider who had Q-level government security clearance, and for the past few years, he's left breadcrumbs of secret knowledge on internet forums. In the Q army, connect the dots. Right, and what's Q's name? Why would I know Q's name? So you could verify if they're a reputable source. Q is a reputable source because I don't know their name. I don't follow. What Q knows is dangerous, and because of that, no one can ever know their name or even the smallest shred of verifiable evidence about them. And that's why you trust them. Yes. Anyone comfortable using their own name can't be trusted. And what's your name? See what you're trying to do there, mate. <laughs> it's not going to work. Like my mum used to say, you didn't come down in the last rain shower, Simon Maskell. Hmm. And what do you say to people who say that QAnon is a cult? Cult? We're not gullible fools in white robes waiting for divine deliverance. And if you don't believe us now, Dan... Once hashtag the Great Awakening occurs and God helps Donald Trump expose the satanic paedophiles, Revelation 13, 18, you will then. Well, that sounds crazy. Okay. Well, if that's not the truth, you tell me. What is the truth? Well, uh, in a secular transactional world stripped of connection and meaning where the powerful lie with impunity whilst the weak are trampled under the jackboot of progress, sometimes people just want to feel part of something. 
Now that sounds crazy. Simon Maskell? Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.